Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Practical Guidance for the Community Oncologist, Incorporating Advances in Therapy for Metastatic TNBC, a focus on TROP2, is accredited by Rush University Medical Center and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. everyone from, from the University of Florida for taking time out of your day to join um, Dr. Herbitz. Um, she will be speaking to practical guidance for the community oncologist, incorporating advances in therapy for metastatic TNBC, a focus on trope two. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Herbitz and we appreciate her time today. Um, Dr. Herbitz is a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. She's also the co-director for the Santa Monica UCLA Outpatient Oncology Practice and also the Medical Director Clinical Research Unit at the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center at UCLA. She's also the Director of Breast Oncology at the Sims Mann UCLA Center for Integrative Oncology um, in Los Angeles, California. So welcome, Dr. Herbitz, and I will turn it over to you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here um, presenting this uh, triple negative breast cancer talk um, that was uh, chaired by Hope Rugo. And you can see the other faculty, uh, including myself, uh, that are a part of this. So uh, the learning objectives are to um, discuss new and emerging targeted treatment approaches in the setting of triple negative breast cancer, discuss the role of ADCs and trope 2 for triple negative disease, and implement strategies to facilitate the use of novel and emerging therapies for triple negative breast cancer in the community-based uh, settings. And this activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences. Um, here is the accreditation and credit designation. Um, this uh, Rush University Medical Center is jointly accredited by ACCME and ACPE and ANCC. Um, and so you will be able to get one AMA credit, category one credit uh, and, um, this, uh, and one nursing contact hour. And then here are the financial disclosures for all of us, mainly relating to the research that we conduct uh, with, with um, research support paid to our um, institution. And then um, just a statement regarding off-label. Here's the agenda. We're going to go through um, some challenges of triple negative breast cancer, the ABCs of ADCs. Trope 2 is a target. Additional ADCs being evaluated in triple negative breast cancer and strategies to incorporate anti-trope 2 ADCs into treatment paradigms. And there will be a couple cases and then Q&A at the end. So let's first jump into challenges of triple negative breast cancer. Um, triple negative breast cancer comprises somewhere around 10 to 15 percent of all breast cancers defined um, by immunohistochemistry by what the cancer is not rather than what it is. Of course, this is not a very sophisticated way to subclassify a cancer, um, just defining it based on its lack of expression of ERPR and HER2. However, as a group, 
group. They tend to be more aggressive, higher grade, more responsive to chemotherapy, perhaps related to its higher proliferation, um, tends to have different sites of relapse, more often in the liver and central nervous system, which differs from that of ER positive breast cancer. Um, affected patients often are younger and uh, women of color, including black women. P53 mutations are common and uh, triple negative breast cancers seen more commonly in BRCA1 mutation carriers or in those with BRCA pathway dysfunction. We know that the outcomes long-term associated with triple negative breast cancer are poorer compared to other subtypes um, in spite of optimal chemotherapy treatment. You can see stage for stage, stage two, three, and four here, with triple negative being in the blue line, um, the outcomes associated with this disease in terms of survival, of breast cancer-specific survival, are much poorer. And so the NCCN guidelines have um, published uh, um, optimal therapy in the preoperative and adjuvant or postoperative setting for HER2 negative breast cancer. Included in there is triple negative breast cancer with these chemotherapy <coughs> options as listed in the top three preferred me- uh, regimens. Elaparib is now available to patients in the adjuvant setting with high risk uh, germline BRCA1 or 2 mutation associated HER2 negative breast cancer, both triple negative and hormone receptor positive HER2 negative. And then we now have the availability of immune therapy, pembrolizumab, in the preoperative setting and adjuvant setting in patients who received it in the preoperative setting in combination with platinum, taxane, and anthracycline-based therapy. Uh, we also have the use of capecitabine in the adjuvant setting where the data is most supportive of um, uh, treatment in triple negative breast cancer for those with residual disease after standard neoadjuvant therapy. Now, we do have some um, biomarkers that are associated with FDA-approved therapy. As I mentioned, any patient with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation um, can uh, have elaparib or telazoparib in the metastatic setting, and we now have the availability of elaparib in the adjuvant setting for high-risk BRCA mutation carriers based on the Olympiad study. Um, In triple negative breast cancer, we can um, use pembrolizumab and chemo in the metastatic setting um, and in the uh, neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting can use pembrolizumab uh, regardless of pd one expression. And then we have rarer alterations including entrec fusions which can uh, lead to the use of larotrectinib or entrectinib. Um, these are very rare in breast cancer but when we do next-gen sequencing um, in the metastatic setting we have the availability of these agents for those rare patients who have those. If a patient has microsatellite instability high or a DMMR, we can use pembrolizumab in the metastatic setting. And if the tumor mutational burden is high, defined as at least 10 mutations uh, per MB, uh, pembrolizumab is available. 
So these are um, relatively uncommon findings, with the exception of PDL1 expression, um, uh, that lead to our ability to use the targeted therapy. More commonly, we are stuck with single agent or, or combination chemotherapy. Until recently, we have the first ADC approved for triple negative breast cancer, sasituzumab govotecan. So pd one testing is uh, done by immunohistochemistry. The current NCCN guidelines uh, recommend testing pd one using the 22C3 antibody uh, with a CPS score of at least uh, 10 uh, being defined as the indicator for use of pembrolizumab in the metastatic setting. Now, of course, uh, recently we had the withdrawal of FDA approval for atezolizumab, which is why we're no longer testing pd one by SP142 um, because the, the drug is no longer approved. All right, let's talk about ADCs. What is an antibody drug conjugate? It has high, uh, a highly selective monoclonal antibody shown in the blue on the left um, for a tumor-associated antigen, so a protein or antigen that is expressed uh, uniquely or overexpressed on tumor cells compared to normal cells um, linked to a potent cytotoxic agent, which is generally a small molecule drug like a cytotoxic chemotherapy with high systemic toxicity toxicity that is designed to induce tumor cell death after being internalized into the tumor cell and released. And then a linker that is stable in circulation but releases the cytotoxic agent in target cells. So ADCs have all three of these components. The antibody links onto the tumor-associated antigen causing internalization. Once inside, the ADC linker releases the drug and the bomb goes off. So mechanism Statistically, ADCs exert their activity by selectively binding to that uh, tumor, internalization, degradation of the linker, and release of the payload leading to cytotoxic uh, cell death. Trope 2 trophoblast cell surface antigen 2 is a glycoprotein that spans the epithelial membrane surface. It plays a role in cell-self-renewal, proliferation, and transformation, and it does have an essential role in embryonic development, including placental tissue formation, embryo implantation, stem cell proliferation, and organ development. Um, But in the adult human, it is expressed in all types of breast cancer um, cells and has been shown to be linked to poor prognosis in patients with breast cancer. So sasituzumab govotecan is a first-in-class ADC that targets trope 2. It has an antibody that's highly specific for trope 2. The drug-to-antibody ratio is 7 to 8 to 1, meaning there's 7 to 8 molecules of the cytotoxic payload per antibody. The internalization and enzymatic cleavage by the tumor cell is not required for liberation of the payload from the antibody. Um, So you can see off-target toxicity with this drug because the drug is not just internalized in the tumor cell. Um, The payload can be released in the area of the tumor. 
hydrolysis of the linker also releases SN38 extracellularly in the tumor um, microenvironment, leading to a bystander effect, which kills nearby uh, neighboring cells. Now, SN38 is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, uh, similar to irinotecan, but it's more potent than the parent compound irinotecan. Um, and this drug was approved in April of 2021 um, uh, for metastatic triple negative of breast cancer, and it works regardless of trope 2 expression level, and I'll show you some data relating to that. So although um, the accelerated approval of sasituzumab govotecan was based on a phase 1-2 study, single-arm study showing marked benefits with this drug in heavily pretreated metastatic triple negative breast cancer, the full regulatory approval of this drug was based on the phase 3 ascent trial shown here. In this study, patients with uh, heavily pretreated at least two prior chemos for metastatic triple negative breast cancer were randomly assigned to sasituzumab govotecan, which is given at a dose of 10 mg per keg IV days 1 and 8 every 21 days, so two weeks on, one week off, versus treatment of physician's choice. And uh, clinicians and patients had a choice of chemotherapy that could be given single-agent chemotherapy. Um, patients, there was no upper limit on the number of treatments patients were allowed to have had before they came on. One of the regimens could have occurred in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting as long as their disease recurred within 12 months of that. It was a 529 patient study with a primary endpoint of PFS as well in the patients who did not have brain metastases or a history of brain mets, as well as uh, overall survival as a secondary endpoint. And this is the progression-free survival shown here. You can see that the PFS was significantly improved uh, with sasituzumab govotecan with a hazard ratio of 0.41, highly statistically significant. This represented a close to four-month absolute improvement in progression-free survival compared to treatment of physician's choice. And the overall survival was also significantly improved with a hazard ratio of 0.48 over a 50% relative improvement in overall survival, a highly statistically significant as well. In terms of trope 2 expression, we did an analysis to evaluate whether higher levels of trope 2 um, uh, actually led to a better outcome for patients treated with this antibody and whether or not patients who had medium uh, trope 2 expression or low trope 2 expression didn't benefit from sasituzumab. And actually, um, if you look at the curves here, in blue are the sasituzumab treated patients and in pink are the uh, treatment of physician's choice. In the dark blue are those patients with high trope 2 expression. And uh, compared to the dark pink, you can see there is a significant benefit with sasituzumab in those with high expression. Then the medium blue colored ones um, 
our, our medium trope two expression level, they do better as well than patients treated with medium trope two expression uh, who were treated with treatment of physician's choice and so on. And then in the table at the bottom, you can see, and the, the trope two expression level is based on the H score, an IHC uh, index. You can see that sasetuzumab govitikan was associated with a median PFS of 6.9 in the trope two high level versus 2.5 for treatment of physician's choice. For those with median H scores, the sasetuzumab was associated with the median PFS of 5.6 versus 2.2. And then even with low trope 2 expression levels, now the numbers are getting very small, um, but the uh, uh, median PFS was better with sasetuzumab than with treatment of physician's choice. So you don't need to use trope 2 expression level to determine whether your patient is a good candidate for sasetuzumab, the benefit does appear to be better for patients regardless of level. It is interesting that lower uh, uh, trope 2 expression levels um, do appear to be associated with worse outcome overall, which is kind of an interesting finding. Now, in terms of treatment-related adverse events, the grade 3, 4 AE rate was noted in 64% of patients. It is important to note that this drug, sasetuzumab, is associated with chemotherapy-like side effects with neutropenia, grade 3, 4 neutropenia being seen in 51% of patients. So um, in some of our patients, especially those who are more heavily pretreated and are coming onto therapy with um, relative pancytopenia, it's important to think about growth factors and, and watching their uh, neutrophil levels. Um, the neutropenia rates were higher with sasetuzumab than they were with treatment of physician choice. Moreover, diarrhea is also seen at a rate of grade 3 in 10% of patients, which is worse than seeing the treatment of physician's choice. So I make sure all my patients have antidiarrheals at home. I'm checking in with my patients for several days after their first infusion to make sure that they're not having diarrhea um, that's out of control at home and giving them guidance. And then finally, patients should be warned that they will experience alopecia. Um, all of the patients I've treated have had full alopecia um, with this agent, just underscoring that this is an ADC, but it does have off-target effects leading <laughs> leading to um, uh chemo-like toxicity. So shown here again, neutropenia, diarrhea, leukopenia, anemia, and febrile neutropenia were all numerically higher with sasetuzumab compared to single-agent chemo. Uh, GCSF was used in more patients. Close to half of the patients in sasetuzumab arm received GCSF compared to 23% in this uh, single-agent chemo. Um, however, dose reductions due to AEs were similar for the um, two uh, treatment arms. Now, datalpotamab, can, another mouthful, um, is a newer trope to ADC that's in development. This is um, has the same payload as we see in trastuzumab can or TDXD, um, but it is attached to an antibody that targets trope 2. Uh, the circulating free payload is negligible due to the high stability of the linker, so it limits systemic exposure and non-targeted delivery of 
the payload. So potentially this could be uh, less toxic than sasituzumab, but we'll have to wait for a comparative trial to know. Um, the payload itself, DXD, is membrane permeable, just like in TDXD. Um, it requires trope 2 mediated internalization for release, but then once the payload is released, it can permeate that cell membrane and kill nearby tumor cells. The drug antibody ratio for this ADC is four in contrast to seven point something with sasituzumab. Um, and it has a longer half-life than sasituzumab, five days with datopotamab uh, compared to 11 to 14 hours with sasituzumab. Um, <clears throat> and the DLT is neutropenia um, with sasituzumab, but for, D for uh, this particular uh, ADC, DC, the uh, dose-limiting toxicity is maculopapular rash and stomatitis. So very different drug, even though the payload is very similar, targeting topoisomerase 1. Tropion pan tumor 01 um, is a study that enrolled multiple different solid tumor types, and there was a triple negative breast cancer cohort um, that enrolled patients with advanced triple negative disease that had progressed on standard treatment. Again, similar to the ASCENT study, patients were not selected based on trope 2 expression. All comers were allowed. They had to have measurable disease. And in contrast to sasituzumab, which is given day 1 and 8 every 21 days, DATO-DXD is given 6 mg per kg every 3 weeks. Um, the current analysis uh, that was presented um, previously um, included 24 patients treated at the 6 mg per kg dose, uh, and eight megs per kg dose. Um, treatment's ongoing in the majority of patients. Six patients have discontinued treatment due to disease progression. And the primary uh, endpoints of this study were safety and tolerability, while efficacy was a secondary endpoint. The objective response rate was a healthy 43% in this heavily pretreated patient cohort, a disease control rate of 95%. You can see um, the eight megs per kg is in the pink bars and you're seeing very nice responses with the six mix per kg dosing level and the spider plot on the far right side shows um, the length of therapy uh, and the change in uh, target lesions over time, um, some patients being on quite a long time. So I think these are quite impressive data, early data, but impressive data in heavily pretreated triple negative breast cancer. So I'm excited to see this drug um, going forward in phase three testing. Let's talk about additional ADCs in triple negative breast cancer. Um, now, we know that a TDXD uh, or trastuzumab directs TCAN, which targets HER2, um, has also shown some efficacy in HER2-low breast cancer. Now, how often does HER2-low occur? HER2-low meaning 1 plus or 2 plus expression, but not overexpression um, or amplification. 
Actually, if you look at the pie charts on the right, you can see for hormone receptor positive breast cancer, roughly two thirds of breast of these uh, breast cancer subtypes have low expression of HER2, and for triple negative breast cancer, actually thirty four percent of them have low expression of HER2. So, if um, TDXD is effective in HER2 low expressing breast cancers, this could actually um, provide patients um, a, a good proportion of patients a new therapy to be used um, that that is not just for her to amplify or overexpressing cancer so a phase 1b clinical trial looking at trastuzumab direct TCAN was published by Shanu Modi um, these are the data on the far left is the waterfall plot for the 48 patients with her too low breast cancer the objective response rate was 37% median PFS 11 months and you can see in the dark blue are those patients who had an IHC of 2 plus shown in the middle panel and those with a 1 plus IHC on the far right in the light blue. And you can see actually you're seeing objective responses in both the 1 plus and 2 plus patients. Um, there doesn't appear to be much of a difference in the efficacy. So 1 plus um, and 2 plus both appear to be having benefit. And this has led to a um, larger study called Destiny Breast 04, which is comparing trastuzumab directs TCAN to chemotherapy directly um, in patients uh, with HER2 low uh, breast cancer that have progressed on endocrine therapy for hormone receptor positive and one to two prior lines of chemo. Um, the primary endpoints progression-free survival. This study has completed enrollment and my hope is that we'll see some data from this study in the next year. And then the Begonia study is a trial looking at TDXD plus immune therapy for HER2 low breast cancer. Um, part one was looking at Durvalumab um, with Paclitaxel. Uh, part two is that combination plus Capivacertib, an AKT inhibitor, um, um, uh, Another uh, group five is looking at olaclumab, a CD73 inhibitor, um, and, uh, and then you can see the other combinations there. This is metastatic triple negative breast cancer in the frontline setting. Um, patients may have relapsed from early stage disease, but have to be at least a year from taxing treatment um, and have to have one plus or two plus expression. Um, if the objective response rate is at least 57%, um, then um, the arms would go into part two expansion um, of a DERVA combination. And so here um, are the early data from this clinical trial. You can see um, there were 18 patients who had completed at least one on-treatment assessment, 12 of whom had response-evaluable disease, and the confirmed objective response rate was 66.7%, 8 out of 12 patients. Um, the responses were observed in pd one positive um, 
and PDL1 negative groups, although the numbers are quite small. And on the waterfall plot here, you can see um, the PDL1 expression is negative uh, in, in blue and positive in pink, and you're seeing a lot of very nice responses regardless of PDL1 expression. Now, keep in mind um, the TDXD is, is quite an effective therapy. We've seen some very nice responses uh, in her too low already from the study I just showed you. The relative contribution of dervalumab to these responses is not known as this wasn't a randomized study, but it is um, uh, really interesting data um, and I'm excited to see it, it go forward in a um, um, in a larger randomized trial. So here's some ongoing additional clinical trials. Um, Sasituzumab, Govitekin, a localized triple negative breast cancer, the NEOSTAR study. We have Sasituzumab, Govitekin with or without pembrolizumab, uh, Sasituzumab, Govitekin in HER2 negative breast cancer and brain metastases. And then there are some planned studies looking at Sasituzumab um, in earlier line settings, not in as heavily pretreated breast cancer Cancer. And I think um, a lot of talk about looking at this drug in earlier early stage disease or the neoadjuvant setting. So what about uh, strategies to incorporate these ADCs into the treatment um, uh, regimens? Here is um, uh, one way of thinking about how to sequence therapy. So in the first line setting, if a patient um, has PDO one positive disease, as I mentioned, a CPS score, a CPS of 10 or greater by uh, looking at the 22C3 antibody, um, patients should receive chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab as the frontline setting uh, treatment. Um, pembro can be paired with paclitaxel, nab paclitaxel or gem carbo uh, based on the keynote trial. And then um, at the time of progression can be offered sasituzumab gobatecan. If patients in the frontline setting are PD-L1 negative, which is roughly 60% of patients, single agent taxane or platinum or other single agent chemo could be offered in the frontline setting. In the second line setting, they can be offered sasituzumab gobatecan um, or uh, another single agent chemotherapy and then sasituzumab gobatecan in the third line setting or beyond. The FDA has approved sasituzumab gobatecan in the um, second line setting and greater. For those patients who carry a BRCA mutation or even a germline PALB2 mutation, the use of single agent PARP inhibitor with a laparib or talazoparib is FDA approved. Um, my choice would be to give that after uh, pembrolizumab-based therapy if the patient's pdl one positive or after standard chemo if they are chemo naive um, and PD-L1 negative, um, but I would probably give that before sasituzumab govitecan given the PARP inhibitors tend to be better tolerated um, and our oral therapy, so we're keeping patients out of the infusion room. Those rare patients with high tumor mutational burden can, of course, receive pembrolizumab. Um, I am checking next generation sequencing in my patients with stage four triple negative breast cancer to see if they have a rare NTREC mutation or another mutation that might make them eligible for a clinical trial. Um, in, the, in the future, there are potential strategies looking, as I mentioned, uh, at uh, targeting HER2 low disease with an antibody drug conjugate 
um, or use of data uh, uh, DXD um, in patients um, with uh, triple negative breast cancer. I'll be interested in seeing how data DXD compares to sasituzumab govotecan in terms of efficacy as well as safety. Now, common AEs um, that occur at least in a quarter of patients with um, uh, antitrope-directed uh, um, chemotherapy, um, neutropenia, as I've mentioned, GI toxicity, alopecia, I've mentioned, anemia, um, constipation, anorexia, rash, and abdominal pain. These are all things that are seen with both Dato DXD as well as sasituzumab govotecan. There are black box warnings relating to neutropenia and diarrhea for sasituzumab govotecan. There can be severe or life-threatening neutropenia that may occur. So um, SG should be held for an absolute neutrophil count below 1,500 um, or neutropenic fever. Um, blood counts should be monitored very closely. So on day one and eight at least, um, I am using a lot of GCSF in my patients. I would say probably two-thirds of my patients, if not more, are now getting GCSF to help support their neutrophils. And this may be due to the fact that patients tend to be more heavily pretreated who are receiving this therapy and come in with pancytopenia already um, and use anti-infective treatment with febrile neutropenia without delay. This is like chemotherapy. This is a chemotherapy agent. It's not like CDK4-6 inhibitors where you can ignore the um, neutropenia. Um, it needs to be treated seriously. Severe diarrhea may also occur, so IV fluid hydration, electrolytes as needed, definitely anti-diarrheals. Um, uh, if there is late onset diarrhea, rule out infectious causes, um, and then, um, uh, of course, withhold SG if severe or complicated diarrhea occurs. Here are additional dose modifications for adverse reactions with ADCs. Um, the first um, occurrence, you can dose reduce um, uh, the first occurrence of grade four neutropenia or grade three febrile neutropenia. Um, you should dose reduce by 25% and administer GCSF. The second time it occurs, 50% dose reduction. I have a couple patients that I've had to uh, do 50% dose reduction um, or um, if at the time of scheduled treatment, you note grade three or four neutropenia delaying the dose by two or three weeks for recovery to at least grade one, um, follow these guidelines as well. If a third occurrence has occurred, discontinue treatment. So again, very careful attention to neutropenia is called for with sasituzumab govotecan with very close management. I think this table provides a very nice framework within uh, which to work. Um, that the first time, um, at the time of scheduled treatment, if a grade 3-4 neutropenia occurs, which delays dosing beyond three weeks for recovery to grade 1 or uh, better, discontinue treatment. So these may seem overly aggressive, but the neutropenia can be very severe, and so it is important to follow. Um, for non-neutropenic toxicity, here are some um, guidelines for the management of sasituzumab govotecan. Um, if you're seeing 
any of these, grade four non-heme toxicity of any duration, grade three to four nausea, vomiting, diarrhea that's not controlled, or grade three to four non-heme toxicity persisting over 48 hours despite optimal medical treatment, or grade three, four non-neutropenic hematologic or non-hematologic toxicity that delays dose by two to three weeks, follow this. First time any of these occur, 25% dose reduction. Second time, 50%. Third time, discontinued treatment. And then if it takes... Um, three weeks or longer for any grade three, four reaction to recover discontinued treatment at the first time that that occurs. All right, so in the closing, um, we will talk about, do some case-based discussion. Um, the first case is Wendy. She's a 64-year-old woman with a pd one negative, triple negative breast cancer, a germline BRCA mutation who received adjuvant ACT chemo, and she had locally advanced tumor progression in the supraclavicular region. Um, it was not deemed to be resectable, so locally advanced, unresectable. She was given a PARP inhibitor, um, and then after experiencing some level of response or, or benefit, develop further local progression. So aside from radiation therapy, what potential treatment options do we have to treat Wendy? Um, and, um, you know, I think there are a number of um, options one could consider. She's had ACT and has had a progression event within a year and then a, a second line PARP inhibitor. So in this particular patient, um, you could consider single agent chemotherapy or sasituzumab gofatecan. What potential adverse events should you monitor for and counsel on? So here are the um, therapies available based on NCCN guidelines for HER2 negative uh, disease. And as you can see, we have all these preferred chemotherapy regimens, but given this patient's relatively fast, uh, locally advanced, unresectable progression, as well as progression after a PARP inhibitor, given she has a BRCA mutation, I would probably turn to sasituzumab govotecan. Um, I think it's important also to look at next generation sequencing to make sure that there isn't um, a tumor mutational burden that's high or an NTREC mutation or something else that would lead to a clinical trial opportunity for the patient um, or uh, one of those rarer mutations that could lead to a standard of care therapy. Um, it's important to note that um, our treatment algorithm for patients in the, in the non-curative or palliative setting is to continue therapy until progression or unacceptable toxicity, and then, of course, to switch therapy if that occurs. We can sometimes treat patients with three, four, five different lines of therapy, but at each time, I think it's very important for us as clinicians to um, have goals of care discussion, consider the patient's quality of life, um, the patient's own desire uh, to receive more therapy. Um, I have a patient right now on third-line therapy with sasituzumab govotecan who is absolutely exhausted from therapy and really feels that she would rather die than continue on therapy. Her quality of life is so poor, and so she's opted to take a one-month break over the holidays and then reconsider if she wants to resume therapy in early 2021. I think the use of palliative care uh, 
the clinicians to help guide discussions about goals of care in the palliative setting, um, especially with triple negative breast cancer that has such poor outcomes, is very appropriate. Um, and of course, aggressive supportive care is indicated for our patients. So um, it's always important for us to sort of do a, an internal check as we are considering next treatment options and be open with our patients about the likelihood of benefit with each subsequent line of therapy. So um, we have our second case, Brenda. She's a 59-year-old woman who has metastatic triple negative breast cancer. She develops systemic progression and brain metastases that are not amenable to um, uh, um, uh, stereotactic radiosurgery. Um, so we can, of course, refer Brenda to um, have whole brain radiation therapy or a clinical trial if there's one available for patients experiencing CNS progression, um, and then um, talk to her about um, uh, systemic therapy options. And again, in this situation, patients going on second-line therapy, and you have the availability of sasetuzumab govotecan. Um, she's not a BRCA carrier. Um, and is PDL1 negative, so use of single agent chemotherapy would also be an option, as would uh, looking for potential clinical trials and considering next generation sequencing to look for those rare mutations that might lead to um, an agent um, that would be potentially effective. Um, so I won't beat a dead horse here um, and go through this again, um, but what I'd like to do now is, um, with the help of our host, um, open it up for um, Q&A. Thank you so much, Dr. Herbitz. Um, we do have quite a bit of time for Q&A, um, so feel free to unmute your microphones or use the chat function at the bottom of your screen to submit questions. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we have our expert, Dr. Hurwitz, here um, to answer those questions. Um, so I will open it up to the University of Florida for questions. Um, here's a question for you, Dr. Hurwitz. Um, have you experienced issues with coverage for sesotuzumab? Uh, Gobi Tikan, um, if you have experienced challenges with access, um, what have you done to help ensure eligible patients receive this medication? When it was first approved um, by the accelerated approval um, mechanism, I did experience some difficulty with obtaining approval from the insurance company. But since the phase three publication and full regulatory approval of sasetuzumab uh, in this past April, I have not experienced issues with insurance coverage as long as I'm using it in the FDA-approved indication, which is second line or greater. Um, what I've had some difficulty with is getting upfront use of growth factors, GCSF, 
for patients. Um, and so for those patients who I'm, I'm really concerned about being at high risk for febrile neutropenia, I'm following them very carefully and very closely and having them come in between day one and eight to check their counts um, because I have had some patients um, have precipitous drops in those first few cycles in their neutrophils when they've started with lower counts. Um, so that's been sort of a challenge, but I haven't personally had any issues with getting sasituzumab covered. It did show a significant improvement in overall survival and progression-free survivals compared to standard of care chemo, and that's something the insurance companies really can't fight. Great. Thank you for that, Dr. Herbitz. Um, I just have someone submit a question. Um, great talk, Dr. Herbitz. Do we know if DATO, DXD, has longer-lasting AEs compared to SACI due to longer HL? Yeah, the longer half-life would make one wonder whether or not um, it would have longer-lasting um, adverse events. We don't have comparative evidence, um, and we don't have a huge amount of data. I mean, we're, we're talking double-digit data with Dato DXD um, in breast cancer. We do have that um, tropion pan tumor study with multiple other tumor types, but it is kind of hard to tell. The one thing that may... Um, be in favor of data DXD from an AE profile is um, it's it's linker uh, technology. Sasituzumab is is releasing the payload before the ADC is even being internalized. Internalization is not necessary, and I think that relates to a much higher payload release and off-target toxicity, causing all these chemo side effects. Um, also, Dato DXD has a lower DAR, drug antibody ratio, <clears throat> which may um, uh, optimize the therapeutic index. So my gut is saying that Dato DXD, in spite of the longer half-life, may actually have a better toxicity profile, but we're going to need to see a bigger data set to know for sure. Great. Thank you for that submitted question. Um, I want to go back to the selection of... Um, one chemotherapy regimen over another. So um, how does one select one chemotherapy regimen over another for TMBC? Maybe you can describe um, that for us, Dr. Herbitz. Well, in taxane-naive patients, um, taxanes really are the preferred regimen given ample evidence that taxanes are the most effective therapy for breast cancer. We don't have any evidence that platinum-based therapy is better than taxanes. In fact, in the TNT clinical trial, they were equivalent for BRCA for patients who are not BRCA carriers. Um, and so I, I think that the use of a taxane in somebody who's never been exposed to one, for example, somebody with de novo metastatic triple negative breast cancer uh, would make the most sense. <clears throat> in terms of how to sequence beyond first-line taxane or in a, or in a patient who's received taxane um, uh, within 12 months in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting, we really don't have much data. We do 
have data supporting the use of aribulin um, compared to treatment of physician's choice or capecitabine in the later line settings. So perhaps aribulin should come before capecitabine um, in patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. But we don't have a ton of data to tell us um, how to position other drugs. Anthracyclines are also um, effective against cancer and could be uh, utilized there in the metastatic setting for patients who are anthracycline naive and haven't had a high exposure to it in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Um, but it's it's hard for us to tell. And, and then you have to insert um, what the patients want, what their goals of care are. None of these regimens in the metastatic setting are curative. And some of my patients, for example, are just adamantly opposed to going through full hair loss without clear um, evidence that it'll significantly extend survival to use an agent that will induce hair loss. So I've had patients choose to use uh, Cape Cytobine or Gem Carbo in the first or second line setting just as an effort to um, stay out of the infusion room or to omit the um, alopecia associated with uh, infusional chemotherapy. So I think it's important for us to take into consideration our patients' goals of care um, when we're making treatment recommendations. Great. And I'll, um, before we move on to the next question that was submitted, I'll have you just advance that slide so um, the participants can see the CME code. Um, so another question that was submitted, Dr. Hurwitz, um, in the neoadjuvant setting, if you don't mind going back to that, when using pembrolizumab, the trial used paclitaxel and carboplatinum. Is that something you are doing regularly or in which patients might you use taxol alone? And if using taxol alone, do you still use the adjuvant pembo? Yeah, so the, the increase in pathologic complete response seen with this, the addition of Pembro to that regimen paired with the improved uh, invasive disease-free survival after in, um, after, or in the adjuvant setting um, makes me want to follow the clinical trial design in my patients with high-risk triple negative breast cancer in the neoadjuvant setting. So yes, short answer is I am using platinum taxane uh, taxol, uh, carboplatin followed by AC. When I combine it with pembrolizumab, um, I, I want to give the patients the advantage um, that was seen in the clinical trial. So I'm not deviating from that design. There are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, we have mounting evidence that platinums may be particularly important in triple negative breast cancer um, when added to taxane. Um, and so I think that gives patients a higher chance of PATH-CR, and there's some evidence that improves long-term outcomes. I know it increases toxicity as well, but I think that um, it, it, we have pretty good evidence that it's improving outcomes. So when I have a node-positive triple-negative breast cancer, I, I would like to incorporate the platinum into the neoadjuvant setting. Second of all... <clears throat> 
another immune therapy trial um, utilized um, taxane platinum without anthracycline, the NeoTrip trial, and failed to show an improvement in path CR rate. That was with atezolizumab. Um, and so I think using the anthracycline backbone as well is important. So yes, I'm following that design um, to a T um, in my patients who I feel are at high risk uh, with triple negative breast cancer. Um, and uh, I, I do think that the improvement in the long-term outcomes with this regimen um, do provide support for us to follow the way that the trial was done. Excellent. Thank you for these great questions, everyone. These are fantastic. Um, I've had another submitted question, Dr. Hurwitz. Can you comment on if you are switching patients off of Atezo after Genentech withdrawal? I, um, I actually have only one patient who was achieving benefit with the Tezo um, at the time of the withdrawal, and she actually switched her care to me on NABPACLITAXOL atezolizumab. And NABPACLITAXOL, I don't know if you're aware, there's this national shortage of it. We're having to um, uh, rationalize um, uh the use of nabpaclitaxel. Um, and so I wasn't able to get it for her at, at UCLA and couldn't switch her to paclitaxel atezolizumab based on the negative data from Impassion 131. So in that patient, I switched her to pembrolizumab plus paclitaxel given the benefits were shown in the keynote study with that combination. Um, so as a general approach, I think if you have a patient who is doing really well on nabpaclitaxel atezolizumab, you're able to access nabpaclitaxel and aren't experiencing a shortage, then I think it's fine to continue that therapy until the time of progression. Most patients will progress within a year, um, some a little bit longer. And um, so I don't see a reason to switch over because if you look at the um, progression-free survival benefit Benefits in PDO1 positive patients from Impassion 130, um, they look fairly similar. That hazard ratio looks fairly similar to what we saw in the keynote trial. So I, I don't see a reason to switch it over, except if you are experiencing uh, difficulty accessing nabpaclitaxel, as that's the only agent that we should be giving a tezolizumab with. Great. Thank you for that, Dr. Hurwitz. Um, just to reiterate, um, uh, would you combine capacitamide with pembrolizumab adjunctively in patients with TNVC with less than path CR after completing neoadjuvant? Um, uh, that was a question just submitted. Uh, yeah, so the question is whether or not to use adjuvant capecitabine um, with adjuvant pembrolizumab in patients who have residual disease at the time of surgery after their pembro-TCAC regimen. And this is uncharted territory. Um, pembro and um, uh, capecitabine should be safe. It has been looked at in the metastatic setting. I think the combination is safe. Um, However, 
in the keynote trial that was not evaluated, um, that was not allowed. Patients didn't get capecitabine with Pembro um, unless they came off study. So it would be sort of operating outside the standard of care. Um, I don't think it would be wrong if you had somebody who had a ton of residual disease and you were very worried about their recurrence, you could um, uh, do that. I wouldn't hold the Pembro for the eight cycles of capecitabine. Um, um, so the soft answer is yes, I would consider it knowing that that hasn't been fully explored in a larger trial. Another question that's come up in a couple of patients that I have is, would you give pembrolizumab concurrently with a laparid if somebody is a BRCA mutation carrier with metas, uh, with triple negative breast cancer and residual disease? And again, the, this is uncharted territory. Uh, we don't have data um, to support the safe um, combination in the curative setting with those two therapies. And I think these are individual patient-based decisions um, uh, that need to be taken into consideration and and. Um, I, I think a discussion is warranted, but again, uh, we're, we're outside the reservation when it comes to these types of situations and need more data before routinely doing it. Great, thank you. I think uh, we have time for one or two more questions. Um, so uh, any last questions for Dr. Hurwitz, please feel free to use the chat function or unmute your microphone. Um, one more question, Dr. Herbitz. Um, have you heard when uh, um deruxtecan may be available for patients with TMBC as well? So we're waiting on um, uh, the Tropion study, which is should be open if it's not already opened, um, looking at this drug in um, in both hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. There's a study I think called Tropics 2 doing that. And then the Tropion uh, trial uh, looking randomized um, uh, data DXD versus treatment of physician's choice. So we need those um, trial data before I think we're going to have it approved and available to our patients. So what I would say is if um, you want to access it, um, you know, look at where trials are available for these um, agents. There are a number of ongoing studies looking at this drug. Great, and we had one more last question come through. Um, so looking on the same note of choosing therapy for TMBC, um, I'm curious about the diversity of treatment options for the treatment of physician's choice arm in the SD, SG trial. Is this a common treatment arm in TMB studies? Is there sub-analysis comparing what those physicians' choices were? Um, it might be a basic question, but um, would be helpful to answer. Yeah, so it's a good question, actually. Treatment of physicians' choice um, is commonly used now in um, tumors where you um, have 
limited options and multiple different chemo options may be available. So the EMBRACE clinical trial that led to the approval of Aribulin um, looked at Aribulin versus treatment of physician's choice. Uh, the TERESA trial looking at TDM1 and HER2 positive breast cancer compared to treatment of physician's choice. Um, so it's, it's a, um, a study design that is supported um, historically based on other studies and has been used to support FDA approvals. Um, in the majority of cases when a study is designed like that, you do specify which chemos are allowed. So for example, in ASCENT, uh, the chemos were capecitabine, gemcitabine, uh, I think uh, vinarelbine, and one other. Um, and then on subset analysis, and if you look actually like at the keynote trial of pembrolizumab um, plus chemo, you had a choice of chemo as well in both arms. Um, when you look at the um, subset analysis, there doesn't appear to be one chemo that's doing better than the other, and uh, sasituzumab is is benefiting regardless of the chemo chosen. So it's a very good question, not a basic question, um, and it's something that is looked at on subgroup analysis um, uh, often when a study is designed like that, um, but it is... Um, uh, usually the different chemo options that are provided are fairly similar in their um, progression-free survival. So this is an acceptable study design. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Dr. Hurwitz for her time today. Um, it was an excellent discussion with everyone, um, and we appreciate uh, everyone being here today, and especially Dr. Hurwitz and our expertise. This has been CME on ReachMD. This activity is accredited by Rush University Medical Center and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.